Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In mid-April, Myanmar's military bombed a village in the country's northwest, killing over 100 people in what's been considered the deadliest attack in the now two-year civil war in the country, the result of the military's coup in February 2021. The airstrike happened just after my conversation with Professor Amit Acharya, author of Tragic Asian Burma, Why and How Democracy Failed, published earlier this year. It's a reminder of the coup and the civil war's consequences for the people of Myanmar. Amitabh Acharya is the UNESCO Chair in Transnational Challenges and Governance and is a professor at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. Some of his many works include The End of American World Order, uh, Constructing Global Order, and The Making of Global International Relations, written with Barry Buzan, and many books besides about Southeast Asia. In this interview, Amitav and I talk about why Myanmar's military junta launched its coup and derailed the country's opening, how Myanmar's population reacted to these events, and the response of the international community. So, Amitav, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. You know, I, I want to maybe ask with, um, to, to, to start our conversation by asking, you know, why did you decide to, to write a book on Burma's history? And an attempt to kind of explain the coup in 2021. Um, why did you, did you decide to write this book in the first place? The first thing I would say is that uh, the motivation was deeply personal, uh, not uh, academic. Um, it's not a book I wrote for uh, uh, my academic advancement, uh, getting a promotion or tenure, uh, as most academics uh, do. Um, and. Uh, Part of the reason for not doing that or not having those motivations is that I already have my, you know, uh, career uh, and uh, I'm sufficiently advanced to uh, need another book. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I think there was a very deeply personal uh, commitment uh, to uh, doing a project like this. And it has to do with the fact that I've always been fascinated by uh, Burma. I visited the country many times, um, and I uh, sort of not only admire, but also I'm I'm puzzled by its uh, culture and uh, its uh, heritage, its uh, politics, and its people. Uh, all this led me to, for a long time, I've been meaning to write something 
uh, that uh, I think would uh, serve uh, the audience uh, that are interested in its history and, and its politics. Uh, so this was really the first motivation. But there are also a couple of other things that uh, prompted me to write this book. This book has been in the making for some time, uh, but uh, really it was the uh, coup and, and also the break I got from COVID in a kind of paradoxical way. Uh, I have more time to actually write this by not traveling anywhere. That got me to complete this book. And here there was a um, these other factors uh, that I was talking about, apart from my personal fascination with the country, is my deep commitment uh, to uh, Burma's democracy, democratic future. Uh, so this is uh, maybe uh, a kind of ideological or a sort of normative uh, urge on my part. I would uh, uh, see uh, Burma uh, return to democracy or become a full-fledged democracy that uh, it has tried many times, uh, but uh, been um, always frustrated, the 2021 coup being the last uh, such setback. Uh, so I am deeply committed to Burma's uh, democratic future. I want to see a country that uh, really uh, fulfills its uh, potential uh, under a democratic uh, governance system. And uh, a third reason, uh, apart from my personal and uh, uh, democratic uh, sort of uh, urge, uh, is that I am frustrated, and I was frustrated, I'm still frustrated by the international community's way of handling Burma. I don't want to say any particular country or particular uh, community uh, of nations, but I think in general, uh, the exception of uh, some members of the international NGO community, uh, most governments don't care about uh, Burma's democracy. Uh, they uh, want to see, uh, of course, many of them do see or do want to see a stable uh, Burma, uh, but um, mainly as a way of uh, you know, their own self-interest, advancing their own self-interest. So some countries want to make money, uh, investment opportunities and uh, trade opportunities. Uh, some countries want to see stability uh, and so that, uh, you know, uh, like other countries, uh, outside powers cannot take advantage of Burma. So this has been, uh, uh, this uh, reasoning was advanced uh, when Burma was admitted to ASEAN, that uh, ASEAN meaning Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, that, uh, that uh, Burma being a member of ASEAN means it will be less prone to uh, uh, taking the Chinese side, uh, uh, using Burma as a pawn in the hands of uh, different uh, external actors uh, has led them not to really care about its own internal situation uh, in, a, in a deep and uh, long-term way. Uh, so that is also borne out in the response aftermath, in the aftermath of the coup, that the internal response, while much of it has been supportive of the pro-democracy forces, but there are a lot of other things that's going on that has taken precedence over uh, Burma's future, and uh, and as a result, there has been uh, neglect of uh, uh, this country, its uh, uh, economic and uh, political chaos that has uh, gripped the country since 2020, uh, 2021 coup. So I would say those are the different reasons, uh, but deeply personal uh, fascination with the country being uh, the foremost reason for writing this book.
So I think the, I mean, the, the coup when it happened in, in 2021, I think, what is it? It's, I, I would say it, it, it shocked a lot of people. And I think it was shocking based on the images that came out, but also I think um, a lot of people that uh, at least were kind of Burma watchers were always scared that something like this might happen, especially as the country um, democratized, but kind of what's your theory on, on, on why the military launched the coup? What, what was it about the regime that, 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 pushed it, encouraged it to uh, take this drastic step? First of all, I was not really surprised uh, by the coup. Uh, of course, I did not predict it um, in, in a way that, uh, you know, uh, some geopolitical forecasters might. But I actually uh, did a manuscript uh, on ASEAN uh, that was already in print uh, in uh, uh, by the time the coup happened, and it's called ASEAN and Regional Order, uh, and where uh, there was a passage that says uh, that uh, that said that uh, uh, given the situation uh, unfolding in Burma, uh, a return to military rule is uh, not unlikely, uh, and it's, it's quite possible. Uh, so it's kind of ha so happened that the coup happened when the uh, manuscript was in the very final proof stages, and I asked my publisher, Routledge, if I could simply amend uh, the, the tense, the grammar, and say the coup actually happened, just add a little line. So um, the, the reason is that uh, I am not kind of the Burma watcher uh, that uh, a lot of other Burma specialists are. I, well, I, I, I look at Southeast Asia. I'm a Southeast Asian watcher uh, and a global order watcher. Um, but uh, Burma has always been on my consciousness. And uh, uh, during my visits and my research, even in 2015, uh, in 2011, uh, I always felt that the military has not completely sold to or bought into uh, Burma's democratic future. And they would be looking for uh, opportunities to come back. And some military officers uh, that I interviewed uh, before the coup uh, and before the COVID, before uh, uh, 2020 uh, 20, uh, outbreak of COVID, uh, they had told me that uh, there are certain, I didn't think they used the word red lines, uh, but there are some markers which would be unacceptable to them and they will, uh, uh, they or their leaders will uh, get back into power either with with force or in some sort of manipulative way uh, through political manipulation. So um, I actually had thought that Burma was heading in that direction. Uh, it's not just a one region, but it is that when the military felt insecure uh, about uh, its uh, position in the political system, and not just the government, but in the political and economic structure uh, of, uh, of Burma, uh, if it feels insecure, if it feels it's going to be displaced or marginalized by uh, the NLD, which was the ruling party uh, at that time of the coup, uh, or, uh, you know, before the 2020 election, um, they 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 would come back. They would uh, probe and find a way to reassert their position, uh, and uh, because of uh, historical reasons, also for a deep sense of. Uh, uh, insecurity uh, and a deep commitment uh, for their own uh, military's own position in Burma's uh, uh, social and political 
uh, system. So I was not really surprised in that sense. Uh, so if you ask me about why uh, the coup happened, there is of course, like most things in life, there is no one region. Uh, there are multiple reasons that uh, come into uh, play. Uh, and uh, and these are discussed in the book and people have uh, said um, and written about them. Uh, so of course, uh, uh, <clears throat> the outcome of the 2020 elections, uh, which actually in a sense uh, uh, was consistent with what I had anticipated and not about the result of the election, but if the Burmese military or the military back party uh, suffers a major setback, then that will aggravate the sense of uh, insecurity and the urge for survival. Uh, that's one reason. The other reason is the personal ambitions of uh, uh, the ruling regime. I mean, I don't want to talk about just one person, but it, usually, uh, you know, the people are the apex of the government. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the, 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 well, I mean, you can say that uh, uh, the change of our military leadership, impending change of military leadership, again, I don't want to talk about uh, uh, General Ong Wing Lying, but uh, just in person, but there's a wider network of uh, influence and uh, political dominance in the system that felt that they are going to be displaced. Uh, that's another reason, the fear of loss of economic privilege, uh, our economic uh, uh, sort of activities of the military, uh, certainly all this uh, played a role. Uh, COVID might have played a role as well, uh, in, in destabilizing uh, the existing political system, the NLD rule in some ways, all this played a role. But I think my main explanation has to do with uh, a long-term sense of the military's uh, own sense of privilege and its own fear of uh, being marginalized. So um, I am an academic. This book is not an academic book, but it does have uh, a... a you can draw on some of the concepts and that I have uh, used in the past to look at uh, political stability and foreign policy of developing countries or post-colonial states. And one consistent theme in this is uh, what is called regime survival. So once a regime uh, comes into power uh, in a state that is uh, generally multi-ethnic and has uh, no sort of long-term tradition of our political democracy, uh, it tends to stick to power. Uh, and uh, unlike the Western countries where, uh, you know, there are agreed uh, consistent uh, rules and procedures about uh, transition of power through elections. And there are also some developing countries where we do have that uh, to more or less uh, <clears throat> to extent. Uh, but uh, most post-colonial countries have uh, uh, the, the problem of regime survival. Their real challenge is not uh, state insecurity, the insecurity of the physical uh, state as such, like country invading uh, another country. That's actually quite uh, rare among the security concerns of uh, developing countries. What is more important is the internal security or internal challenges to the regime of the country rather than external threats to the uh, physical survival or territorial integrity of the country. I don't think Burma really has a problem of external invasion or fear of external invasion, a legitimate fear of external invasion these days. It has been the regime security. Um, and once the regime comes into power, it sort of finds a way to stay in power. It may sound very simplistic uh, or very obvious, but uh, you know, people miss that point. 
And uh, in my book, I uh, describe that uh, that explanation, uh, that deal with that explanation, how the Burmese uh, regime, the military in particular, came to see itself as not only indispensable uh, but for political stability, but also feared con uh, for its own survival through um, the different stages of Burma's post-independence history. And uh, once you get into power, once you enjoy the privileges, once you uh, sort of take it for granted uh, that you are going to play a major role and you are going to keep a privileged place in the political mm -hmm. system, it is very hard to give up. And you may give it up under certain circumstances to some degree, as uh, the military did after the 2008 constitution, where it felt confident that uh, relatively confident that nobody can dislodge it, nobody can marginalize it. But then the, uh, the military never uh, really uh, took uh, a democratic future as its uh, destiny. And, uh, and it was prepared, always prepared to come back uh, to power if its position was compromised in any way. And that's the sense of regime survival. Uh, that is the central part of my explanation of why the coup happened. The coup is kind of the immediate manifestation of a very long-term trend of uh, regime survival, military regime survival, that has defined Burma's politics since independence. And, and one more question, I think, on the military and, and on regime survival before we kind of move on to other things you bring up in your book. But I guess, do you see the, the 2012 opening, um, you know, the moves towards democratization, in my head, I can kind of see two explanations on why the military did that. The first is that they felt so secure. I think, as you as you as you hint at, they felt so secure, uh, both in their own authority and in their, I guess, ability to reverse things, um, that they felt they could go down this path. Or was it seen as a as a different path towards dream survival? As in, we have to, I guess, loosen the controls a bit so that we can secure, continue to secure the military's. Um, place in the country. I, I guess, which of those explanations make more sense to you uh, in terms of the 2012 opening? I think we should go back first to the uh, the Constitution, 2008 mm -hmm, Constitution, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because of the provisions of that Constitution, uh, which kind of al almost guarantees the military uh, veto uh, on, uh, at least that's what the military thought, a veto on uh, uh, any political or constitutional change that will take away that privilege of a guaranteed uh, reservation of our seats in the uh, in the parliament and, uh, and, and and something things that come with it uh, so th the military then felt that it could actually allow or afford to uh, allow change uh, it can uh, relax a little bit and uh, and let let the sort of civilians uh, take over uh, because it's never going to be completely marginalized. The military cannot be. So that sense of a, what I call a mild complacency uh, actually led it to go along with uh, uh, the subsequent elections and uh, create the impression that Burma is uh, uh, on its path to a true democratic transition. So, uh, so that then uh, creates uh, expectations. And when you come to the later elections, 2012 and uh, 2015, uh, you know the military uh, initially uh, was quite, quite, quite okay with that. It was never fully secured, though. 
And that's the important thing. There was never any sense, in my view, uh, in the military that uh, the Burma's democratic future is uh, in its long-term uh, or permanent interest. So regimes like uh, Burma uh, or the dominant groups in countries like Burma are never fully secure. No political party or a uh, faction or a, you know, faction of the ruling uh, system is always uh, is ever permanently secure. So it was basically watch and see how the system unfolds. And uh, so I think the in that sense, the explanation will have to be the fact that the 2008 constitution, which has now been abolished by uh, the National Unity Government, uh, was uh, never uh, a full guarantee, a permanent guarantee for uh, uh, keeping the military uh, happy or uh, secure in that sense, in its own self-perception. And that uh, basically un uh, unraveled as a result of the 2020 election, when the military and its, uh, the party in fact uh, severely lost uh, seats in the, in the election. So kind of moving on to other people that, um, that were affected by the coup are kind of reacting to to the coup and I guess the the civil conflict that's that's followed it. You know, you you frame parts of your book around comments from people you call uh, the thought warriors. Um, I guess you know who are these people and why did you want to include their views on on this topic um, throughout your book? Yes, um, that was partly a um, matter of necessity and partly a matter of. Uh, uh, my my own fascination and my own uh, desire to support uh, a group of people which, uh, you know, as you would know, are uh, called civil disobedience movement uh, <clears throat> activists. So uh, the civil disobedience movement, actually CDMs, uh, city of activists, uh, they are non-violent, I mean, more or less, uh, unlike the armed organ ethnic organizations and other people are taking on arms. And uh, many of them are not all, but many of them are students and, uh, and they tend to belong to a younger generation. And uh, I saw them uh, and I do see them as the future of uh, Burma. And uh, in the past, when I visited uh, the country and uh, I think I mentioned in my book, uh, I do mention in my book that I taught at Yangon and Mandalay universities. Uh, some of my students were uh, mature, but, um, in meaning they were coming back to studies in their 30s and 40s, but some of them are very young. Um, in fact, when I uh, lectured at Yangon University, uh, one of the courses I taught was the first year, what you call a freshman undergraduate seminar, we call it in the US, uh, on uh, international relations, which had just been reopened after being closed uh, for, for decades. And, uh, and I was uh, the first person, uh, first lecturer to them, what is international relations? And I had a chance to interact with these very young uh, people. And uh, of course, by 2021, um, they would have grown up and another young generation would have come in. But I had some idea through my interactions with them in uh, Yangon and Mandalay universities uh, to, 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 to get a sense of what are they thinking. Uh, they are, uh, Optimistic, young, and uh, nonviolent. Uh, they're like any student I teach 
in my university in Washington, D.C., American University in Washington, D.C. And it was so positive and so refreshing uh, that that's where I got a commitment to that generation. And in fact, um, uh, one of my uh, roles as an academic uh, is that in 2014, I was elected as the president of the International Studies Association, ISA, which is the largest body of uh, academics a uh, largest association of academics uh, studying or uh, researching international relations. And in my presidential address, I showed that picture, uh, that, that, uh, that class in, uh, in the Angon uh, University uh, uh, that I was teaching at that time. Uh, so, so I was very committed to encouraging this generation. So when uh, the coup came, uh, my, my, my real fear uh, among other things, was that what would this generation feel? How they see this school? Uh, they see their whole uh, future destroyed by this act. Uh, do they have any hopes? How do they see the way out? So that's why I decided to go after them in terms of uh, talking to them and uh, getting their views and uh, incorporating them into my book. So one of key uh, aspect of my book is that it sort of base, uh, it, it bases itself on my, uh, you know, experience, my dealings, my conversations with them. Of course, it was very difficult to do, it was impossible to go to the country, and it was difficult to conduct any interviews uh, with uh, the CDM activists. But there are ways of doing it, and some of them I'm not uh, going to reveal here because of uh, my safety, my concern for their safety. But uh, with the help of some uh, uh, people inside uh, Burma, I was able to do a series of uh, interviews uh, and uh, conversations and uh, get their opinions about uh, how they see the coup, how do they see the effect, effects of the coup, consequences of the coup, and what may be the way forward or backward, um, how the coup might resolve or how the political situation might unfold. So I call them thought warriors. They are thought warriors because uh, they are warriors, but they are warriors of thought, not uh, like uh, using, resorting to violence. Uh, and uh, most of them are committed to nonviolent uh, solution to nonviolent uh, approaches to Burma's political future. And I uh, really interacted with them, got their views, and went uh, uh, try to sort of compare them or situate them, their views, uh, on what I had learned during my previous visits and teaching experiences in uh, classrooms in, in Burma. And then I came up with the basic sort of uh, uh, if not the plot, but uh, kind of one of the most important part of the book. Uh, so th that part of the book uh, and th permeating throughout the book, except for the chapter on international affairs, most of them uh, didn't have much to say about uh, international reaction, but about domestic politics, history, uh, the future of uh, politics in Burma. Uh, so those are the things I, uh, uh, my 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 thinking was uh, sourced on them, influenced by, um, by by them, and I wanted to put them front and center. It's also another way, uh, one of the ways of, for me to uh, commit myself to the future of the young generation of uh, of Burma, which are not professional politicians, who are not uh, 
uh, you know, people with jobs, uh, or at least some of them had jobs, but most of them are still students. But I think uh, it is on them that the future of the country uh, depends, in my view. So they are the thought warriors. They're warriors, but not uh, using violence, but uh, with the thinking and with their civil disobedience action. Um, I mean, clearly there's there's been a big... Uh there was a big kind of civil disobedience, um, nonviolent reaction to uh, the coup. But there's also been um, the growth of, 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 I mean, of more violent conflict, um, both involving uh, the NUG, um, but also the a lot of the um, the ethnic autonomous organizations, those groups um, in the rest of Myanmar. I mean, how has the um, how has this more um, violent, aggressive, assertive response to the coup? Um, how has that developed since 2021? Yeah. So we should uh, make a very important distinction between the, the CDM activists and mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. ethnic armed organizations, uh, and how, of course, uh, then the politicians who kind of struggle um, uh, on both sides. Uh, ex they don't necessarily engage in violence. I'm mean, talking about the political leaders. Uh, but uh, I think the most important uh, thing to remember is the CDM, uh, CDMs are committed to nonviolence. That's why they call civil disobedience uh, movement activists or civil disobedience movement members. So, um, so uh, that is not to say that uh, there is no sort of overlap between CDM activists and uh, ethnic armed organizations or others who are not from any given ethnic group, uh, like the minority group, um, non-Bomar group, but uh, still uh, they take military action. So Burma, uh, all sorts of things are going uh, in Burma these days. Uh, you know, there are uh, uh, different types of coalitions, different types of interactions. As you would know, that uh, Burma is a mosaic of ethnic groups. Uh, one of the countries for complexity is that so many different actors and uh, from different ethnic groups, even different groups from the different factions from the same ethnic group, uh, are uh, out there are playing a role in uh, shaping the future of, uh, if not the whole country, at least uh, their own regions. So, but I would like to say that I am most uh, committed to, uh, most, uh, I interacted most with the civil disobedience uh, activists. And uh, they sometimes, some of them do uh, engage uh, the armed organizations. Uh, they do engage in uh, some sort of a quasi-military action, but uh, that's not their primary uh, objective or primary means. I would like to therefore say that uh, it is them uh, whom I am, uh, I was most most uh, uh, engaged with. Um, by the way, it's important to keep in mind that uh, many of the CDM activists, uh, and I, I mentioned that in my book, are actually uh, fascinated, impressed, by the ethnic armed organization. Some of them even feel that uh, the ethnic armed organizations are really uh, and, and, and sort of some sort of a deal between uh, them, these organizations, and the civilian uh, government is the future, uh, uh, is the key to the future of the country. Many of them uh, see the EAMs as uh, kind of the 
you know, a bit of a hero worship uh, in there, that they, these are people who are committing themselves, I mean, the armed organizations, to defend the country against the military, and especially those who are fighting the military, those uh, uh, armed organizations, they see themselves as saviors of the country. There is a bit of a fascination, bit of a, a, a hope there, and, uh, and a bit of conviction that uh, uh, the ethnic armed organizations are the key to the future. Now, um, but not every CDM um, activist feels like that. Um, those who I've interviewed, some of them do feel, uh, some of them think we should go in a nonviolent uh, way. But uh, <clears throat> again, uh, my um, major sources inside uh, Burma for this was the civil disobedience uh, activists and that's another uh, distinctive aspect of the book because uh, uh, I actually don't interview uh, or uh, meet with uh, people who are in the uh, military government, uh, the UNTA, or in the national unity government. Uh, so the only interviews I have done and I've relied, in the past I've talked to all the all, all sides. Of course, there was no NUG before, but I've talked to NLD. Uh, leaders. I have uh, talked to the previous military government uh, uh, or the immediate post-constitution government uh, of uh, uh, Thane Sein, for example. But uh, while I was writing the book, I had not, uh, I decided consciously not to try uh, uh, to engage any of them. Uh, the only people I engaged was the CDM activists and the students. And that's one of the distinctive aspects of the book, which I believe, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, this book is uh, born out of uh, my engagement with them, and it is uh, meant for them. I am less concerned about how this book uh, is uh, relate, uh, how this book influences, uh, you know, the overall political debate about uh, uh, Burma, whether it's liked by the uh, you know, either the military, or of course, never going to be liked by the military, or even by the NUG. I felt uh, really this is the key point about the book uh, that I like to place on the table, that uh, this book would not have been possible without the thought warriors. It is uh, dedicated to them, and uh, it is, uh, in a sense, my way of. Uh, they are my audience. It's my way of uh, encouraging them. It's written for them. Uh, and uh, it's not uh, therefore, uh, you know, a conventional academic book or even a like public interest book. Uh, it is meant to inspire, encourage uh, the CDMs and uh, what the thought warriors. That is the distinctive aspect of the book, to put it very broadly. Mm. So I, th I think I have, I, have, I have one more question, and, and it harkens back to something you think you mentioned near the beginning of this conversation. Um, which is uh, ASEAN, and I guess more broadly, the international response um, to the coup. You know, I th you know, obviously, like before the coup, uh, ASEAN trumpeted uh, Burma's opening as proof that its non-intervention, non-interference doctrine uh, worked, that its policy of engagement worked. Um, they're probably not singing that tune now after after the coup, um, but. Uh, but but what's your I, I guess how do you see um, the international response to the coup in Myanmar, the coup in Burma, um, whether specifically on ASEAN or 
or or more broadly? Yeah, uh, let me start with ASEAN first. Uh, I have been a longtime student of ASEAN, and uh, I have seen ASEAN's policy uh, towards uh, Burma uh, from the 1980s uh, and 90s to the present. So. Um, ASEAN policy has not been static. Uh, so you said ASEAN was following non-interference, more or less true. But ASEAN also had divisions uh, within uh, the organization. ASEAN is a group of uh, 10 countries since uh, <clears throat> 99. And uh, it, uh, it has different voices. But there, is, there are some uh, ASEAN leaders that departed from strict non-interference. And one of them is actually the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Uh, today, Anwar Ibrahim. So Anwar Ibrahim, in the, uh, when he was Deputy Prime Minister under Mahathir Mohamad, talked about uh, uh, what is called constructive intervention, uh, not constructive engagement, which is basically, you know, all construction, no engagement. I used to joke about it. Construction meaning building and hotels and uh, uh, construction to make money by international community, including ASEAN members, and without engaging of uh, the, the regime for military uh, political change. So Anwar Ibrahim uh, uh, in, in, in the 1990s, when he was still uh, in, the, in office, uh, he called for constructive intervention. He said that we should not be uh, you know, blinded by uh, non-interference. We should engage uh, the regime, we should try to promote political change. And that was taken up in a much more significant way by uh, Surin Pichuan, uh, the late Surin Pichuan, who was a Thai foreign minister uh, and uh, until 2001, and later became the ASEAN Secretary General, uh, who I uh, had the privilege of knowing uh, very closely and working with him very closely. And Surin called it, uh, flexible engagement, uh, which is again a policy going beyond constructive uh, uh, intervention or non-interference. Um, so Surin's idea was that, uh, you know, uh, just because uh, the political uh, crisis in Burma or the, you know, political situation in Burma is mainly of internal origin, doesn't mean it doesn't have regional consequences. Uh, so he said that when a country has a problem, that is domestic in origin, more or less, but has international or regional consequences, ASEAN should not uh, uh, stay neutral or uh, inactive. ASEAN should uh, get involved. And that policy had been there, um, and it might have played some role in the political transition that happened in the early 2000s, leading to the new constitution and the elections uh, later. So, but what has happened since the coup? Uh, so I give ASEAN some credit, um, but uh, despite the, policy of non-interference, which is still ASEAN's mantra, which is still uh, adhered to by the majority of ASEAN members. Um, and you can think about uh, countries like Vietnam and others who are basically themselves worried that uh, departing from non-intervention will mean somebody else will also interfere in their activities. So you know, given the fact that ASEAN is not a uh, body of democratic states, there are different types of regimes there, ASEAN leaders are worried about if they if they open the door to foreign interference in domestic politics in Burma, this can also uh, backfire and uh, come to hunt them in, in the future. So, so uh, ASEAN still remains committed to non-interference. But after the coup, uh, ASEAN has opened up a little bit to some extent, countries like Singapore and Malaysia have been very active in uh, uh, opposing the coup. Uh, in a way that that did not do when Thailand went to a coup, um, you know, a, a decade ago. 
Uh, and uh, but at the same time, same time, ASEAN has uh, has been and remains divided. So um, ASEAN wants to uh, play a role, but it's not quite sure what kind of role it should play, how intrusive it should be. And uh, one other thing I would like to point out that uh, ASEAN, uh, you know, started with a bit of a promise in responding to the coup, and you uh, know about the five-point consensus that was reached. Uh, few weeks or months after the coup in Indonesia. Um, and everybody thought that was a great breakthrough. I actually did not think so. And uh, in my writings and interviews, I said it was premature. Uh, it was too optimistic and it will legitimize the uh, the Burmese regimes, uh, you know, uh, kind of a legitimacy or self-sense of legitimacy. I actually said that in an interview with Al Jazeera, but I also uh, <clears throat> said that in, in public forums, that the five-point consensus was, well, having a formula is good, but uh, inviting uh, uh, the general to Jakarta to you know, sit with uh, other leaders so soon after the coup, without making any prior concession or understanding, without having any prior sort of uh, uh, negotiations or uh, talks about what the military is willing to offer, was premature, to say the least. And uh, that has uh, turned out to be true. So the five-point consensus uh, remains in paper, but uh, in, in reality, uh, it hasn't uh, really worked. Uh, Burmese uh, regime went back on its words, uh, whatever it might have signaled, uh, although it's possible that uh, we all misread it, the ASEAN countries misread what the general was willing to commit. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, nothing has happened out of it. Uh, so ASEAN should therefore have been more careful, uh, more prepared, and uh, and also be uh, had a plan B uh, if uh, the five-point consensus did not work. Uh, I think ASEAN would, uh, ASEAN leaders would claim they do have a plan B, but I'm not sure what that is. And uh, it's basically uh, you know, going along with uh, uh, the regime, uh, so not supporting necessarily, not all ASEAN countries, but just accepting it in a very fatalistic way uh, and feeling kind of powerless in, in, in the way that hoping that something will happen uh, that will be sort of a, um, a more positive uh, in terms of political change in Burma. Not all ASEAN countries want to see democratic uh, transition in Burma, because again, that may have a snowballing effect that might actually uh, create hopes uh, for their own population. But um, those who do, they are powerless and uh, they feel powerless even if they don't say so. What about the international community? I, very quickly, the international community has not really been uh, concerned about uh, uh, the situation in Burma after the coup. Uh, and partly this is a matter of conjecture. Uh, so we first had the very chaotic uh, US withdrawal from Afghanistan that sort of preoccupied the United States. But then we had, uh, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the international Western uh, countries are really concerned about uh, what's happening in Ukraine and NATO and Russia. And uh, they, I mean, they may say otherwise, but uh, they don't have time uh, or energy or resources or uh, interest to uh, de uh, de develop any serious policy uh, towards Burma. They, it's easy to resort to sanctions. Um, especially the Western countries that have that kind of economic muscle, uh, but even those uh, have not been uh, very effective. Uh, so um, that's the situation. 
the Asian countries, uh, you can talk about Japan, China, uh, India. Uh, in some ways, they are you know, are very careful. They don't want to put too much pressure on the regime. In fact, China and India have developed relationships with the regime, military relationships at least. And uh, Japan also is concerned about uh, not losing its uh, influence uh, in, in, in inside Burma. So none of these uh, uh, countries, the Asian powers, have been really uh, seriously committed to finding a solution to the crisis in Burma, even if they may have good intentions. Well, I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Amitavacharya, author of Tragic Nation Burma, Why and How Democracy Failed. Amitav, I actually have two more questions for you before we wrap up, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what do you think the next project might be? Um, okay, um, sorry, could you repeat the first question? Where? Oh, where where can people find your work? I know there's a lot of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> where can people find my work? Um, it's all over the internet. Um, so um, thanks to the growth of uh, internet and social media, um, it's very easy to find my work. Um, a lot of it is, uh, uh, of course, you can buy the books on Amazon.com. And there is, a like many authors, I have a uh, kind of section uh, under my name, all my books, uh, especially books are there uh, because there are no articles in Amazon.com. Um, you can find them in uh, for articles and book chapters. Uh, you can find them in Academia Edu and also ResearchGate, uh, which are two websites where I I post a lot of my writings uh, once the copyright period is over. Uh, and uh, so there are dozens and dozens of this uh, my my writings uh, going back to the last two two and a half decade uh, in there. Uh, of course, Tragic Nation cannot be found there because a new book and uh, the, you know, the copyright uh, is still uh, active. Uh, so my uh, publisher, Penguin Random House, uh, only they can decide uh, why they want to post it. But uh, it's certainly available in Amazon Kindle at the moment, uh, especially Amazon Kindle in India for whatever reason, uh, it's available there. Now it should be available in the US very soon. Uh, in terms of the uh, rest of the world, there are a lot of uh, things uh, you can just Google and find it. Um, so, and last but not the least, if anybody wants any of my writings, and this is a commitment that I have uh, made and I have uh, upheld uh, for uh, years and years now, uh, if anybody wants any of my writing, and writes to me, and my email is very easy to find. Uh, our universities don't hide our emails. Uh, they can write to me and I will send it to them. And I often do that, especially to people in the uh, in the global south, the post-colonial, uh, sorry, uh, the developing countries, which uh, do not have resources to uh, buy uh, books and articles. And, uh, you know, articles can be very expensive. Even an article of uh, 10 pages can be 30, pounds or, or dollars. Uh, so I send it to them, uh, provided it's uh, not uh, totally blocked by copyright. And if I send them individually, it's not for mass circulation, it's quite fine. So feel free to write to me about uh, any publication of mine, which you do not have. I cannot send uh, entire books, that will be a violation of copyright, but book chapters, um, articles, uh, especially that have been done for two years or so, but even if this fresh, uh, I can certainly send it. That's uh, my answer to your, your question where you can find my book. What's my next project? Well, my next project is uh, 
next big project is a book about the history of world order. So it kind of goes out of Southeast Asia. Even though I work in Southeast Asia, I also work on uh, sort of global order, world order. And uh, as you can see, some of my more recent publications are about uh, constructing global order and uh, end of American world order. So my next uh, big book project is uh, a book about the history of world order. It is 5,000 years. Uh, uh, scope come, go, starts with the Sumerians and the Egyptians to the current uh, period, what we call the American-led uh, uh, liberal world order, and looks at how different civilizations, uh, including uh, not only the more well-known ones like China or India or Islam, but also African and pre-Columbian American civilizations, uh, meaning the Incas, Mayas, Aztecs, Olmecs, uh, and the like and the Native American Indians, uh, how they have contributed ideas and uh, institutions and approaches to what we call world order and how world order has come from this multiple uh, locations, historically and civilizationally, rather than from Europe, which is the basically our default uh, sort of conventional wisdom now that the current world order or world order in general is kind of, you know, the European world order writ large and has been developed further by the United States. Uh, I challenge that. I challenge uh, the views of uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, who is very Eurocentric, starts with Europe and ends with the United States and puts everybody else in between. I ch challenge uh, uh, Neil Ferguson, who says that, uh, you know, the rise of the West was entirely due to Western ingenuity and innovation, and uh, the rest basically were downloading or following the Western lead. Or Samuel Huntington, who uh, said that uh, civilizations actually class with each other. I actually found uh, much more evidence of civilization, civilizations learning from each other and uh, doing so peacefully. And also I challenged Fukuyama, who uh, once actually thought after the end of the Cold War that uh, with the end of the Cold War, only liberal democracy and, uh, and uh, capitalism uh, sort of remains uh, as the viable options for nations. And I, I think all of them have been wrong. Uh, at least partially, uh, but to some sense, grievously, they have been all very Eurocentric. And it is time for a book written from a more global perspective. One of the very few books that have ever been written covering all the civilizations of the world by a non-Western writer. Uh, probably the one of the very few books in world order uh, with such a global sweep of history written by a non-Western uh, Write up, but more importantly, from a non-Western or a, what I call a global perspective. Uh, so that's uh, the book I'm working on, and uh, almost uh, three quarters of the way uh, done. Uh, it is uh, going to be published by Basic Books of New York. I think I can mention that, uh, and uh, but it won't be out until uh, late next year, 2024. Well, I look I look forward to to hearing and learning more about it. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review Books podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, Amitav, thank you so much again for joining me on the show. 
Thank you, Nicholas. It was really nice talking to you and thanks for inviting me to this podcast.